Welcome to Finance Against Slavery and Trafficking, the podcast. Each episode, we'll take you on a deep dive into the connections between global finance and modern slavery and human trafficking. We'll look at all the different ways that the financial sector can harness its leverage to end modern slavery, forced labour and human trafficking, and bring you a roundup of all the latest developments from ESG regulation to revealing research. How can we make modern slavery reduction a goal of impact investing? That's the question we tackle on this episode of Fast the Podcast. To answer it, I speak with a number of pioneers in the field. First, we hear from Chloe Bailey of Moving the Market and the Freedom Fund. And next, I speak with Dr. Mark Moser, Head of Impact at Lightrock, about what this looks like at scale. My third guest is Ed Markham, Managing Director of Working Capital Fund, an early-stage venture fund focused on labour management practices. And finally, I speak with Rathish Balakrishnan, co-founder and managing partner of Satva, which is investing in solutions in India's construction sector. Let's get started. To get started, I spoke with Chloe Bailey, Program Manager for Legal and Business Initiatives at the Freedom Fund, about their Moving the Market initiative. So Moving the Market is a collaborative donor fund that was launched in 2019 by Humanity United, UBS Optimus Foundation and the Freedom Fund. So we're a group of funders that have a thematic focus on tackling forced labour and human trafficking, but we also had an interest in seeing how the financial sector could be mobilised to address these issues. The idea behind Moving the Market was to pool donor resources to support innovative projects to increase investor engagement on modern slavery. This is in recognition of the emerging interest in the financial sector on ESG strategies, but also seeing that there was a considerable gap in engagement on social issues as part of this. What's the theory of change then, Chloe, for how you would make these grants or investments? The overarching aim was to advance the S in ESG by encouraging investors to consider social issues like modern slavery across different asset classes with a specific thematic focus on modern slavery. And the title comes from our aim to move the market by funding projects that both build investor demand for investment strategies that meaningfully consider social issues like modern slavery, as well as advance approaches to account for social impacts in investment decision making. So we decided to support projects that are developing and piloting new strategies to do this. And rather than just making the case for why investors should care about modern slavery in their portfolios, we were keen to fund specific products that could be utilized by the financial sector to mainstream investor uptake and action on social issues. So that could be from um, toolkits for asset managers on how to identify and address modern slavery during the investment cycle or data and metrics that better assess modern slavery and human rights. That's great. We often hear from uh, investors and indeed other financial sector actors that they're all very keen on taking action on these issues, but it's actually rather difficult, quite time consuming, expensive, 
and really hard to integrate some of the tools that are out there with their business systems. So it sounds like what you're getting at here is really filling that gap and making it harder for them to say no in a way. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think we're still at a relatively early stage. And when you look at social compared to environmental in particular, there's definitely a bit of an uphill climb in terms of getting investors to understand what this even looks like in their decision making. And I think we were also quite keen to move outside of those socially responsible investors that are already engaging in these issues and are sort of more minded to react to modern slavery. So looking to expand out to those bigger asset managers and make modern slavery an issue that they're considering alongside things like climate change. The way that we structured our grant making was in response to all of the proposals that we received. And I would say that was something really interesting from the outset, just the amount of interest that we got. And I think The launch of this initiative was actually really timely because it came out a couple of months after the Financial Sector Commission published the first report. We obviously recognised that we were tapping into something there. And the three key gaps that emerged from the proposals that we received were around advancing approaches to social measurement in connection with business performance expanding the market by engaging asset managers and funds, and then a smaller area around cultivating new voices in emerging markets. The five key grants that we gave outside of the additional grant to the investment integration project to look at the impact of COVID-19 were across those three areas. So, for example, on the topic of advancing approaches to social measurement, we provided a grant to Rights Collab that are doing a really interesting project that I know that you've been engaging on around SASB and how to develop and define strengthen modern slavery disclosure standards as part of the SASB framework. And I think of all of the projects, this is the one where there is sort of the potential for a big impact, right? And we've seen how the SASB standards have come out as having backing from some of the largest asset managers. So if modern slavery is integrated into those standards, that could potentially have that sort of mainstreaming impact that we were looking for. And we were really interested how Rights Collab were proposing to convene this expert group of advisors to input into this process and engage with SASB on how those standards could be improved. Another project that we have funded is one that's being run by Ergon Associates. So they're working with DFI invested private equity funds to increase modern slavery risk identification and management, specifically those fund managers that are investing in emerging market companies where there may be higher risks of modern slavery. So development finance institutions like CDC and Norfund 
They have specific environmental and social performance standards. They're expected to be cascaded down the investment chain. And this project looks at how the fund managers identifying and addressing modern slavery risks specifically and providing them with guidance and support and how to do this more effectively. And they'll be publishing a knowledge product at the end of the grant, which we think will be really useful for those other asset classes that haven't really been engaging on this issue today. And then finally, Another one that we have been supporting is a project by Oxfam India, and this falls under that sort of cultivating new voices gap. And Oxfam India is part of the Fair Finance India Coalition, looking at the growing sustainable and responsible investment market in India and seeing how disclosure can be strengthened on human and labor rights. There's a really interesting existing ESG disclosure framework in India. So what they're doing is trying to improve those standards, but also engage with Indian investors on how they should be looking at modern slavery risks in the companies that they're invested in. A great wealth of different approaches being tried there. Our listeners will remember connections to several of those investments. Uh, We were lucky enough to have Joanne Bauer talking about the Rights Collab work on an earlier episode, and Mark Eckstein from CDC was also on another episode talking about the role of development finance. On the third one, I, I noticed that recently the stock exchange regulator for India issued new ESG disclosure rules that include mention of forced labour. So that's an interesting sign that regulators are going to be taking a closer look at this issue. And of course, that will have an immediate impact on investors. This brings us back, I think, Chloe, to something you mentioned at the beginning, that you're interested in bringing in a broader pool of investors, not just maybe the traditional impact or responsible investment universe, but the broader pool that's now being drawn into ESG investing. Do you see this as a trend that's going to continue, that there'll be more attention to these kinds of issues around forced labour, modern slavery from a larger universe of investors? Yeah, I think so. And obviously, that's our longer term goal. I think you can see with the the impact of the Boohoo scandal in, in the UK and how that sort of had reverberated within the investor community as well. And I think one very interesting area which I focus on in my other work is looking at the US tariff act and the impact of forced labor import bans and seeing how that's a tool that's being used by civil society to sort of disrupt the trade in forced labor goods. But that's not just having an impact on the companies themselves, right? So if a company has their goods stopped at the border, that has an economic impact, and then that has an impact on their investors as well. So I think we've still got quite a way to go in terms of demonstrating that modern slavery is a material issue for investors. But I think over time, this is an area which, which will increase. Indeed. And I think one of the points that Joanne Bauer was making about dynamic materiality is that in a way, what is material depends on what investors think is material. So if they start acting as though this is a risk, it will actually become a risk in the market. And that's all going to help achieve the ultimate goal. Thank you so much, Chloe Bailey, for being on Fast the Podcast. Thanks for having me. 
As Chloe explained, Moving the Market aims at fostering an innovation in addressing modern slavery in impact investing. So what does it look like for a large fund to incorporate these issues into its broader strategy? To answer that question, I spoke with Dr. Mark Moser, Head of Impact at Lightrock. So Lightrock is a global direct private equity impact investing platform that has been initiated by His Serene Highness Prince Max von zu Liechtenstein, who is our chairman and also the chairman of LGT, the International Private Banking and Asset Management Group. LGT as such has been backing us um, together with the Princely House of Liechtenstein since our very beginnings. And we have been investing since uh, 2007 into companies that generate positive, measurable social or environmental impact alongside financial returns in Europe, in India, Latin America, and, and Africa. We have a team of about 60 professionals spread across four continents and seven countries, so, so truly global. And my role is to oversee our impact and ESG management um, globally, so develop and, and maintain the related processes and tools, implement them into the investment process, and then obviously also work directly together with our regional investment teams to assess the, the impact potential of new investment opportunities and support them in, in managing, monitoring, and then also reporting our portfolio's impact and ESG achievements. So a very simple job you have there, Mark, by the sounds of it. Very simple. <laughs> now, you mentioned that the positive social impact is, is at the heart of, of your mission and your approach. What is the way that you make your investment choices? How do you approach your, your investing? Yes, I think just a little bit of background. Now, as an impact investor, and as you said, with this clear intention to make measurable and demonstrable social and, and environmental impact, we want to back companies and, and partner with sustainable businesses that are built by purpose-driven entrepreneurs with a strong commitment to innovation for systemic change. And change, of course, for the better, in the sense is that, um, of, of meaningful contributions to the people or, or the planet in, in response to some of the most pressing sustainability challenges that we're seeing today. So what businesses are these? Um, our portfolio companies pursue scalable tech-driven business models around three key impact themes, people, planet, and productivity, or tech for good. And by that, we believe in and, and really bet on um, significant opportunities that we see to harness breakthrough developments in technology and business model innovation for creating effective solutions to address sustainability challenges. And that's really kind of our strategy. And investment decisions are made by our investment committee, um, as with any probably investor and private equity investor that consists of a subset of, of senior, our senior executives, our CEO and global managing partner, and then the, the regional lead partners. And, and according to our standardized investment process, the IC convenes and takes multiple gradual decisions on new investment opportunities before investing. And then afterwards, for any material investment event, such as follow-ons, exits, um, during and then at the end of our ownership period. So Mark, I think you mentioned there that one of the, the areas that you invest in is, is people. Can you tell us a bit more about that? What, what is the aim there? What is the measurable impact? Is it increasing the number of people, increasing their welfare? What's the approach to people here? 
Yes, exactly. So people is one of our three key or kind of really macro impact themes. It's people, planet, productivity. And within those themes, we focus on specific underlying sectors or sub-themes. And in people, uh, it's, for example, healthcare, education, what we call social impact or social impact objectives. And we believe that these sectors offer disproportional impact and value creation potential. And for each of these themes and and sectors, we have well-defined impact objectives and and developed evidence-based what we call theory of changes, um, taking a view basically on how it can progress from from the current state to, to a better future and identifying innovative businesses that can best drive this change in a a commercially viable manner. And in line with this strategy and and focus, we aim to contribute through our investment activities, of course, to the achievement of overall 13 UN Sustainable Development Goals. So this seems to be more about identifying businesses that can have a scalable impact on the systemic outcome rather than negatively screening out businesses that might be having a a detrimental impact on, say, exposure of communities to forced labour risk. Am I hearing that the right way or are you, in fact, looking at both positive impacts and and negative impacts at the same time? Yes, absolutely. So, no, we definitely look at both and, and I can clearly explain you why. I mean, reducing negative impacts is definitely also part of our approach and has to be in place an important role when investing, assessing, and and managing companies. However, reducing negative impacts is not our guiding strategy, but it's rather a hygiene factor. What do I mean by that? And without going into uh, too much detail here on the difference between an impact and an ESG approach, our impact strategy is led by the aspiration to identify and invest in efficient business solutions to social and environmental problems. So it's definitely on the positive impact side. That's our filter. That's our investment focus. And as such, we naturally would exclude businesses or sectors as well that generally do more harm than good to people or the planet. Now, every business generates a diverse range of of impacts, right? Um, You could also call them externalities or effects on a multitude of stakeholders. These impacts can be positive or negative. As you said, they can also be intended or unintended. But what they do have in common and should have in common is that they need to be actively managed, particularly the ones that are substantial and and material in the way that they could impact basically a a company's bottom line or really the, the, the success of a business, so business success. For example, in the form of reputational damage, right? And that relates overall just to good, responsible and sustainable business conduct. So besides our clear impact focus on certain business models and high impact themes, we also only want to invest in businesses that manage these impacts and actually strive to become the sustainability leaders overall in their respective sector or market. And why? Because these businesses have proven to be more competitive and and successful, particularly in the mid to long run, making for more attractive uh, investments, uh, obviously. And also, we clearly don't want to have the positive impact that is being created by the core operations, the products or services of these businesses offset by substantial other negative impacts that the business is generating. And that would be contradicting and and, and frankly, not very credible as as an impact investor. 
And that's why we have developed and implemented the best-in-class ESG uh, management approach uh, that is complementary to our impact strategy and focus and does consider all these potential negative impacts uh, of our investments. And in the same way, we expect this from our investee companies. So this brings me, I guess, to, to the central question, Mark, about how we factor forced labour and, and human trafficking risk into, into this kind of approach. So when I listen to the kinds of themes that you're investing in in the, in the people domain, so education, healthcare, digital finance, that immediately says to me that there are a number of potential positive spillovers we know from the anti-forced labour world that if you increase access to education, you reduce vulnerability to child labour, for example. We know that improved healthcare reduces the prospects of somebody having a cash flow crisis and therefore needing to do risky things in the labour market. And similarly, we know that better access to finance through digital finance, for example, can reduce vulnerability to trafficking. So I guess the question for me is, how do you capture that, those kinds of positive spillovers, those positive externalities in an investment strategy? Are there ways that those positive impacts on vulnerability to trafficking could be factored into your investment choices and strategies? What would that look like, in fact? That's a really good question. And yes, we do obviously factor these in. And I think the common denominator within our social themes and, and impact focus and objectives, you could call vulnerability and resilience of people um, that relate strongly to obviously the livelihoods of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as such, I think this is a central theme to our investment approach and, and also how we see the world and, and the society. And it is so in two ways, right? It's at the level of our systemic impact objectives and at the individual investment or company level when it comes to responsible and sustainable business conduct, as I explained before. At the systemic level of our impact objectives, when we think of market-based solution to these social challenges, it's, it's often about providing access to and, and the quality and affordability of, of essential products and services, such as healthcare, such as education, or responsible financial services, and reliable access to energy as well, food and nutrition, even mobility, but also economic opportunities, really, and jobs to support livelihoods, um, and even access to know-how, markets, information, technology, for example, for farmers, but also small and medium-sized enterprises, for example. If we think through the positive implications and outcomes of these interventions, we more or less directly always arrive at aiming to reduce people's vulnerability. And, and let me give you a concrete example, as you already mentioned, relatively straightforward is financial inclusion, right? Access to responsible financial services, providing new access to previously underserved populations to savings accounts, payment services, insurance and responsible lending can reduce their vulnerability to economic or financial shocks or crises and decrease the chance that these people fall back, for example, into poverty and experience or are exposed to any type of adverse events and, and practices. And, and that's fully kind of embedded into our strategic thinking that then actually leads our investment sourcing, our investment management, and support activities with our investments. 
When you're going through those processes, Mark, of, of selecting investments and then managing them, are there things that are missing that would allow you to optimize for these impacts, in particular, these impacts around vulnerability to trafficking? Is there a need for particular kinds of data or metrics or are there other tools that allow you, for example, to optimize for, say, impacts on climate risk that we do or don't yet have in relation to these kinds of risks? Yes, that's, that's a good question. I think for us, really kind of one of the core activities that we have to be really good at at the outset we have to form a view an in-depth view on whether an investment has the potential in healthcare in education or financial inclusion to make a significant contribution to this objective right and that's the essence of what we do and what we want to understand Mm -hmm. in our impact due diligence Mm -hmm. and That's why this is a critical factor also for our investment decision-making, of course. Now, whether you call it specifically, what specific issues, issue that I want to address, vulnerability to trafficking or or modern slavery or vulnerability to poverty, vulnerability in general to any negative events or practice that these people could, could get exposed to, that is subjective in a way and depends really on your strategic preferences and focus. In terms of what would be needed to really optimize that and what we really rely on, it's certainly a lot of scientific evidence and and, and ideally more scientific evidence and data on what works and what doesn't, and also the realities of the effect of people or people at risk. We have undoubtedly come a long way over the past years to bring light into those aspects and and issues through scientific research. For example, what we're seeing is is so-called RCT studies, randomized controlled trials, or other longitudinal research, but also initiatives exactly like the the Liechtenstein initiative, um, FAST. But it remains still challenging for us, for investors um, who are even one step further away to connect the dots really between the information and data that companies can provide us, either pre-investing during due diligence or then other afterwards during monitoring, and what we want to achieve really at the systemic level, right? And, and this refers to the so-called theory of, of change or the, the causal change of, of effects of how an intervention and its outputs lead to certain outcomes and ultimately the systemic change that we want to see and aim for at the societal level. So in a nutshell, clearly better data, more evidence and and transparency on these dynamics on the ground, obviously always with regards to the specific context of your investment focus. So taking a step back as, as we wrap things up, Mark, thinking about how impact investing is, is changing. Do you think that these kinds of issues around labor standards, workforce management, human capital management, are they going to take on a bigger role in impact investing strategies in the future, do you think? Yes, I definitely do think so. And purely because of the fact that equally as these can be seen as a high risk area, depending a little bit where you operate, it's also a high value creating area or creation area or an area of opportunity at least to drive substantial positive impact, right? And the realization that that great and, and, and healthy work culture and environments leads to obviously happy and motivated employees and, and, and can really make a difference between 
business success and failure, particularly with 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 earlier stage companies, and um, but also later stage larger companies, has definitely arrived. I think everywhere, and conscious and responsible investors that I would say impact investors usually are should also obviously look at that and value that and factor that in. Now, we need to be aware that although still a niche investment strategy, impact investors today are providing finance and and partnering with companies across almost all stages, world regions, and and asset classes, right? And for every individual strategy or investment focus, scope of influence, the tools and possibilities to take action, but also how these issues really materialize on the ground in investee companies and in the specific country or company context can look very different, actually. So that means that there is no one best model or management approach to that that fits it all. And, and we need a certain level of customized and, and calibrated approach in how to best address these issues and, and, and targets to them, whether it's seen as a risk or, as I said, as an opportunity, ideally. What I also observe in the impact investing community is that there is a zero tolerance uh, for, for labor and work-related non-compliance at the investee level. And beyond that, there is also a clear trend towards managing and, and working together, really, with, with investees towards international good practices and apply a more strategic view and approach to these issues in order to create more value with and for companies, their employees, the shareholders, and the wider stakeholders. Now, from here, I believe we have room as an industry to extend this active management and a more strategic view and and monitoring and support to increase transparency also around labor standards and working conditions further into the supply and, and value chains of our investee companies and investors can and should play here an important and active role also to support that. Maybe as a last point, what I'm also seeing is, is an increasingly nuanced diversity in thematic strategies and the tendency to build a strategy around specific cross-cutting topics such as diversity and equality, such as operational efficiency, supply chain management, digitalization or adoption of technology, data and analytics. And here I could well imagine that there are actually already or will be really expert impact investors with a dedicated focus on labor standards and work management, exclusively investing in businesses and solutions um, to promote these areas, which is is definitely an, an exciting thought. Dr. Moser is right. There are impact investors emerging with a dedicated focus on labour standards and workplace management. I spoke with one of the pioneers, Ed Markham, the managing director of the aptly named Working Capital Fund. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Ed, tell us a little bit about Working Capital. So uh, Working Capital is an early stage venture fund focused on investing in supply chain solutions and tools that give particularly multinational companies, better visibility into their extended supply chain with the idea of then better understanding what's going on with respect to labor rights risks. And what was the origin of this idea? It's a, it's a novel idea to focus on the, the labor aspects in an investment fund. Yeah, so Working Capital was launched and incubated within Humanity United, which is the human rights-oriented foundation started by eBay founder Piero Midiar and his wife Pam. And it was part of a larger body of work that I oversaw focusing on addressing forced labor and the extended supply chains of multinationals. The basic premise being that in today's world where you have a lot of firm specialization, 
you ultimately then have distributed production and outsourcing, which has led to very complex opaque supply chains. And it's in that opacity where actually a lot of bad things and a lot of poor labor conditions can go into the products that you and I buy on a regular basis. And so we did a lot of work, both philanthropically as well as with investment capital, trying to motivate companies to do more, worked on a number of the policies that are now driving companies to do a better job of disclosing what steps they take to mitigate some of these risks. So starting with the California Transparency and Supply Chain Act, the UK Modern Slavery Act, now there are a variety of legislations in France, in the EU, that are all basically pushing companies to report what they do to mitigate some of the risks of labor abuse taking place in their operations, their extended operations. And also did a lot of work with, you know, investigative journalism, et cetera, breaking stories, you know, when you were finding forced labor in particular goods and or commodities. But I think we found that while you could motivate companies to do more, on the flip side, there were well-intentioned companies wanted to be doing more and the toolkit available to them was relatively limited. So when you get past voluntary supplier codes of conducts, which are voluntary, often very difficult to enforce, social audits, which have some utility but are, are limited and are a snapshot in time, they can be gained. They often don't tell you that much about labor conditions. Multi-stakeholder dialogues, again, important, but can be slow moving, can kind of devolve down to lowest common denominator at times. We recognized that the tools available for business actually weren't that strong. And we started to see the emergence of a, new, a number of new technologies that we thought could constitute a suite of tools that would enable business to actually, in a, in a you know, cost-effective way, be able to ascertain what was going on in their extended supply chain. What um, kind of technologies are those, Ed, that you're mentioning there? So there were a variety of areas where we were seeing innovation. So, you know, beginning with things like blockchain technology, which can give you much higher level of confidence with respect to chain of custody and or origin of a particular good. So if you don't know where it came from with certainty, how are you going to know what kind of labor conditions went into it, for example, through to the ubiquitous penetration of cell phones now that allows you to crowdsource information from workers directly about what's going on in a particular working environment. A lot of IoT and wearable devices now can give you information about ambient working conditions, big data analytics, which has you know, emerged in, in so many spheres of our lives with AI and machine learning can take lots of different in information and ingest it and begin to potentially spit out something. If you're a, a company and you have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of subcontractors, it can tell you where you may have higher levels of risk with respect to labor exploitation. So these were all areas where we started to see a lot of innovation and actually a lot of applicability to some of the problems that companies face as they try to better understand what's going on in their operations. So when you're thinking about your investment choices, would you say that your selections are problem-driven or technology-driven? Are you focused on those particular technologies? Or are you agnostic about the technology and looking to solve a particular problem? I mean, I think as a starting point, it was a combination of both. So, um, you know, I think we saw the beginnings of sort of clusters of products around particular areas. So, you know, what we would call worker engagement, I mentioned, you know, whether it's IoT devices or cell phones, there's ways of capturing information potentially directly from a worker now in ways that you previously couldn't. So that was sort of a category where we felt like, let's look and see what kinds of, you know, opportunities exist. And in many cases, because there are very few companies who actually start a company with labor rights in mind, uh, we're coming in and sort of in the, the jargon of the industry, the additionality we're providing is that by, by providing our investment capital, we're able to influence them and put product roadmap ideas like labor rights, you know, applications of, of their technology sort of in their purview. So, you know, in many cases, we've, we've, we've kind of come in and said, hey, while you're at it, why don't you capture some labor rights related information? So, you know, that would be an example. Again, blockchain technology was emerging, you know, a lot of interesting opportunities there. And we knew that 
chain of custody and, and lack of assurance into, you know, origin, provenance of product, et cetera, has always been a problem. And so, you know, we, we saw an opportunity there as well. We haven't limited ourselves to these technologies, however. So, you know, when we do see an opportunity and there's, you know, a couple areas where it invested, for example, in ethical recruitment, where they're not particularly driven by technology, but they're driven by what we think is an important solution to a really large scale problem that needs to be addressed. And so in the, in the instance of ethical recruitment, maybe just to give a little bit more color there, you know, there are hundreds of millions of people, usually in the global South, who migrate abroad for a job, um, often in some sort of manufacturing setting. It can be in Malaysia, it can be construction in Qatar, et cetera. The vast majority pay a year to two years worth of salary to acquire a job. They end up arriving in destination country, their passports confiscated, they don't speak the local language, there's sort of contract substitution, so the terms that they thought were in place are not in place, and they end up working for two years and coming back with debt and or even in worse shape than they, they were when they originally you know, left for that particular job. So, and that doesn't happen, you know, in a small, you know, sector of the population in one sector and one geography, it's, it's, it's really sort of systemic. And so we've tried to find models where you can basically have recruiters who are able to mitigate some of those risks with respect to contract substitution, with better transparency, with better pre-departure training for workers, and with an economic model that ultimately has the employer paying as opposed to the worker shouldering that burden. But those are very, you know, sort of brick and mortar, capital intensive, sort of low margin uh, investments. So they would not be typical for a venture fund, but those are things that we think that if we can get a proof of concept that some of these models actually are viable, economically viable, and the unit economics can be worked out, they could be an important solution for, for many, many businesses who are facing that risk. Is the arrival, I guess you could say, of new disclosure and due diligence regimes or, or the maybe acceleration of those regimes in a number of jurisdictions, is that changing the, the business equation there? I mean, I think it's been very catalytic. You know, I think when you look at ESG investing writ large, which has been growing exponentially, a lot of capital pouring in, it's still been primarily focused on the E and the G and the social and or the labor underneath that has been lagging, I would say. And so a lot of the legislations that have uh, emerged, largely disclosure legislations, I think have been a motivating factor, you know, even some of them that lack teeth. And I know there are those in the, the, the activist and NGO community who feel like they don't go far enough. I understand those complaints, but I think that they've been catalytic. Usually they have some sort of requirement for C-suite sign-off on those statements. And you've seen increasingly that they are getting some teeth and some liability. If you look at, for example, the duty of care in France, where there is some liability if you don't do enough and you are found to have, uh, you know, have forced labor in your extended supply chain. Um, and what I understand, you know, with respect to the mandatory human rights due diligence legislation and some of the legislation under consideration now in Germany, they will similarly have, you know, a little bit more teeth so that, that you can have a little bit more of an incentive. But even without that, um, I think that it's, it's, it's put this issue um, on the map. It's forced companies to pay attention to figure out how to try to report against it and to recognize that it's a real risk. Right. So just coming back to, to some of these tools, can you share a little bit with us, Ed, about uh, some of the investments you've made? Yeah. So, you know, looking at some of the different categories I mentioned earlier. So if you take worker engagement, um, those kinds of tools that can capture information directly from workers. The first investment we made, and it's I think it was sort of a, um, a landmark firm in the space, is, is in Ulula, which is a, a worker voice worker grievance mechanism where you're able to crowdsource information directly from workers real time anonymously. You're able to ask, also ask survey questions to workers. Typically, it will be brands who buy that and then dictate that their suppliers use it so they can get better visibility into whether grievances are being filed, whether those are being mm -hmm. addressed correctly. So if there's 
some issue around pay or sexual harassment or whatever it may be, forced overtime, you're able to get that information and it creates a layer of visibility and transparency into what's going on. Another example in that particular area would be Kenzen, which is a biometric device that uh, evaluates heat exhaustion. So it's a couple of very talented engineers from Stanford. And as IoT devices and wearable devices, the price goes down exponentially and it will continue to go down. What's really different about their technology is their, their algorithm is highly predictive as to when you're entering that zone of potential risk. And they don't look at just heat, but they look at perspiration, heart rate, et cetera. And they also know the ambient environment around you and how that may be impacting all of these different elements. And so they're able to, if you're a worker, tell you, hey, you're entering into a zone where you're at risk of heat exhaustion. You may want to take a break. And it gives the worker specific information. It gives the supervisor anonymized information. So the supervisor can't say, well, it looks like Bob, who's always out of shape, is yet again slowing us down. But it does say, hey, there's a couple people on this particular shift who are at risk. You might want to stop. Uh, right. Give them a break. Give them a water break, what it, what it may, whatever it may be. So that's an example in that particular category. I'd say the vast majority where there's, there's more deal flow than probably any area is in the traceability and transparency space. So many companies for a variety of reasons, both for efficiency of operations um, and to ensure that there's no supply chain disruption, but also increasingly to capture certain environmental information, if not labor rights related information, need to know who's in their extended supply chain. So we've invested in a platform like SupplyShift, which helps help you map that supply chain. So you have a single platform where if you're a corporation, you can see all the way down to the fifth tier who your sugar suppliers are. You can ask them to upload certain certifications and or ask certain questions so you have that visibility and, you know, it's surprising how few companies to date have actually known who's in their supply mm -hmm. chain on the second, you know, first or second tier. So, you know, we've invested in things like that. We've invested in platforms like Provenance and OpenSC, which are both blockchain based, but are focusing particularly on trying to identify verifiable automated third-party claims about a product. So increasingly, instead of it being self-reported, can you capture geospatial-related information, you know, science-based targets with respect to carbon offputs, greenhouse gas emissions, and in some cases, even, you know, with respect to digital pay stubs from wages of workers that show that they've been paid a fair wage or even a premium. And you can then attach that, and then you'll have high levels of confidence as that flows through the supply chain, in some cases, all the way through to consumer, what went into that and how people were either compensated and or, you know, what kind of environmental processes went into the production of that process. So those are a few examples I can keep going. We've got uh, Altana, which is a risk assessment platform. It's a, basically using, again, AI and machine learning to, it originally was looking at, at issues of illicit trade but it is expanded to basically create a knowledge graph and or it will like with, with a limited amount of information about your first tier suppliers can go out there and capture information about who they think is in your extended supply chain from second, third, fourth tier, and then begin to ingest a variety of either public or private information that will tell you, you know, whether it's beneficial ownership structure of the corporation, social auditing related data, foreign corrupt practices related data, all that can be melded together. And it may begin to tell you that Hey, there's something here that is triggering a risk, you know, based on correlations with other instances of forced labor. We're not saying anyone's guilty, but you may want to throw more social auditing dollars at these particular group of suppliers, for example. So, Ed, fascinating investments. How do you track their, not so much their performance, but their impact? If part of the point here is to have an impact on labor yeah. force management and, and the, the social risks associated with that. How do you get a handle on that? 
Yeah, we've been very serious about the impact assessment side of our work, you know, recognizing that, you know, given our origins, we're not here to drive profitability for the sake of profitability and perhaps invest in superficial tools, but rather we really want to make sure that the tools we're investing in are meaningfully solving some of the problems that need to be addressed. We've been fortunate, one of our investors as a limited partner, but also through philanthropic dollars, the the Lattice Foundation has given us money to have a developmental evaluation team with us throughout the process. So in this regard, we don't have to wait until the end of the process and try to evaluate, but we have someone who's sort of riding shotgun with us throughout the process, helping us understand why we made certain decisions, you know, how those turned out, how they align or may be inconsistent with our original theory of change, how that's tweaked. With each company, we are a program-related investor, so that's a legal definition, meaning that the company in question actually has to report out against a side letter of particular covenants and metrics. So in inception, when we're going through the investment process, we'll identify what we want to see them investing in. Often those things are, for example, an assurance that they're working in a particular market, a commodity or an industry where we know there's high risk of forced labor. It can be in some cases, depending on the company, a little bit more granular, how many workers will they touch directly and or how many decisions may they influence more upstream in the supply chain in terms of procurement and how procurement dollars flow. We do have a relatively heterogeneous portfolio in terms of which aspects of the system we're trying to influence. And as a consequence, it's kind of hard to have a uniform set of metrics that you can apply to each company. But something that is a risk assessment platform, you know, maybe telling you information about suppliers that can influence both your risk in terms of sort of regulatory risk, but also some of the decisions you make about who you continue to partner with and or not partner with. And so there's ways of assessing, did that have the impact? And, you know, again, the idea there being that the theory of change would dictate that the more you're rewarding good suppliers and punishing bad suppliers, the more those who are not compliant are going to have to get their act together. And you'll ultimately start to see companies be required to be more transparent, to have the right kind of certifications in you know, whatever industry or commodity they're, they're working in. And so that would be the, what we'd be trying to measure there. If it were a company like Lula, we might be trying to figure out what is the scale? How many workers are you touching? What kinds of grievances are you hearing? How many of those are being responded to positively? Do workers actually feel like they've got more agency as a result of that? Does that influence their you know, ability to be productive, to stay on the job? Is it reduced turnover? All of these things can be measured and they're proxies for impact in our mind. You mentioned there in that answer, Ed, that, that you have investments at many points in the system. Is that an indication that there is some systems thinking motivating your, your selection of these impact indicators? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this again, this goes back to our origins within Humanity United and the Omidyars across all of their philanthropic entities several years ago went through a process where they felt like many of the foundations had been doing a good job of being rigorous, putting forward, you know, metrics and theories of change. And yet when you actually look at, you know, did the outputs and the outcomes achieve what we wanted to? Possibly yes, but did the system go right back to stasis as a result of that? Often it does. And so how could you know, we take a step back and think about all the moving parts and not look at the work in isolation, but try to better understand, you know, as I mentioned earlier, this is part of essentially the system of globalization, right? You've got firm specialization, you've got outsourcing, you've got weak regulation often in you know, destination countries. You've got a whole host of issues that make it very, very difficult to move the needle on this. And you have to be eyes wide open about which aspect of the system you can influence and which you can't. And as I was mentioning earlier, I think we feel like you're probably never going to, at least in the short term, 
address outsourcing, address globalization, even address supply chain complexity, but you probably can do something about opacity and the kinds of information you're getting. And that's where, again, we've seen technology come in and help provide that opportunity. Now, Ed, this is a commercially driven fund, but I understand there was a philanthropic sidecar, as it was called. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, you know, you need different kinds of capital to solve different kinds of problems. And we came to this really with the intention, again, not of making boatloads of money, rather trying to solve the problem. And one of the things we felt like was very clear was that there was a dearth of innovation and a dearth of startups focusing on labor rights related activities. And so we used the sidecar fund for a variety of different things. Some of it was to continue the philanthropic work to support people who are driving the right kinds of legislation forward to do a market assessment of how big is this sort of responsible supply chain tool space? Does it even exist? If so, you know, who's on board, who's not, how quickly is it growing? What needs to be done to sort of accelerate that? But more importantly, and and where we used most of that cash was to take what would be napkin stage ideas, very nascent ideas that were too early stage, too risky for a venture fund even to invest in and give them philanthropic capital and have them then try to go out over a year to 18 months and see if they could get some traction to the point where we'd be able to invest in them. And or we might come across operations where maybe they were a little bit more mature and they had some traction, but they had no labor rights related offering. And so we would give them a philanthropic grant. They could use that to sort of test whether they could build out a tool that could address some of our requirements with respect to to labor rights related reporting. And then, you know, again, after 12 to 18 months, you know, could we invest in, in in two instances, we did invest in companies that actually received sidecar funding from us. So that's exciting. Um, Is that the the future direction of travel then, this kind of seed investing and then then growth through subsequent uh, series? What's the outlook for you now? So fund one, I should probably go back and just give you a little bit more background as well in the history of that. You know, we, we were embedded within Humanity United, but in what is actually a rather novel approach for the Omidyar or the Omidyar group more broadly, this group of philanthropic entities, we um, decided to open this up and syndicate it to a variety of impact investors as well as corporations. I think our thinking was we're going to actually have a lot more impact. We're going to be able to amplify the impact we have by bringing other people around the table, exposing them to the innovations that we have particularly not just from impact investors, but on the corporate side, they are the audience and the potential buyers of the tools we're investing in. So we can bounce ideas off them. If these entities begin to scale and actually professionalize to the point where they could be a viable alternative with them, we might see some contracting, which we have. That was very much the makeup of, of fund one. And so we were really lucky to have Walmart, Apple, Disney, CNA, the clothing company, Zalando, a UK-based online retailer, I mean, an EU-based online retailer, rather. All of them were were participants in Fund One. And we've just concluded Fund One as a $25 million fund. And we are now launching a second fund. And the second fund just had our first close at $22 million. Um, It will be a $50 million fund in total. So after the first close, you have a year to complete your fundraising. And, and so we're hopefully on, on, on the path to do that. And similarly, we're, we're hoping to have both impact investors, but again, corporations around the table, because we really feel like that allows us to amplify the impacts of what we're doing across the board. That's great. Last question from my side, Ed. This really seems like a, a pretty interesting innovation in the space. Do you see other peers in the impact investing space that are taking this kind of labor rights focus around you? We haven't seen people who are focused exclusively on labor rights or um, as narrowly, I guess, as we are. I think there are people who are ESG investors who look at planet and people uh, more broadly. And, you know, I think that, again, there doesn't have to necessarily be a zero-sum trade-off in many cases when you're looking at transparency 
with that transparency, then you have a whole host of potential outcomes that can emerge. So there are people and there are many other investors in our ecosystem who are able to share deal flow with, in some cases, you know, we'll identify deals that they want to invest in and or vice versa. But no one has had the, the, the kind of more narrow focus on labor rights, particularly. And I think we're actually very uniquely positioned. So our origins within Humanity United and truly understanding the issue and understanding the legislative you know, agenda and, and the trends in that space. My partner, Dan Biederman, who ran a group called Verite, which was one of the kind of go-to consultancies for Fortune 500 companies when they face labor rights related issues, you know, has just tremendous domain experience and expertise. So the combination of, of kind of who we are and where we come from, I think has helped us be able to sort of, you know, manifest or, or exercise our, our ability to invest in, in what is otherwise, I think, would be perceived as a relatively narrow space. So clearly positioned extremely well for the, this potential new market that's opening up, but not least as a result of the ESG and uh, disclosure and due diligence rules that we were talking about earlier. Do you think you'll remain alone or relatively alone in this space, or do you see others coming into this market in time? I mean, I would welcome more coming in. I think that what's probably the more likely outcome, as I said, is just a more robust assessment and or inclusion of, of S or labor rights related information in investment criteria. I think that particularly coming out of COVID, we've seen that more people are paying attention to the S. There's been this emphasis on, you know, frontline and, you know, and, and essential workers. Inequality has been front and center. More people in a variety of different contexts are focusing on, on social as they evaluate criteria for investment. I don't think many of them have necessarily applied that to extended supply chains and emerging markets the way we have, but I think that there probably will be some momentum in that direction. Well, Ed Markham, thank you so much for your insights about uh, everything you're achieving with your innovations at Working Capital. We look forward to seeing your successes in the future and thanks for coming on Fast the Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. My last guest for this episode is Rathish Balakrishna. Rathish is co-founder and managing partner at Sattva, a consulting organization based in India with an exclusive focus on social impact. We are a 220 plus organization. We largely work in India, but also in across 11 countries in Africa and select countries in South Asia as well. Our work broadly covers uh, four focus areas. One is in advising clients uh, who are donors in where and how to invest in philanthropy. Two is to enable nonprofit organizations and social enterprises to scale. Third is in conducting field and landscape research globally to inform decision making. And four is to build technology-based tools and solutions that actually complement the focus we have in our consulting. That's a, a very impressive suite of areas that you work in, Latish. In all that work, do you come across these risks of, of labor exploitation in, in some of the work you're doing? Absolutely. A significant chunk of our work, James, uh, focuses on livelihoods. And in India, there is a large focus on looking at the opportunity side of livelihoods, which is to provide people, um, you know, skilling and financial capital to scale. But through our work, what we recognized is that the focus is not just on enabling people jobs, but ensuring decent work. There is a growing challenge, thanks to the large number of migrants we have in our country, of ensuring decent work and working conditions for the poor, you know. So there is definitely a risk of labor exploitation that we're dealing with, especially in one of the key industries that is the second largest employer in India, which is the construction industry. How do those risks arise in the construction sector that you mentioned there? Yeah. So just to give you a sense of the scale we are talking about, construction industry is the second largest employer in the country. It employs close to about 90 million people. 
And 90% of those people are actually migrants, which means that they come here for a period of time. And it's important for us to understand the profile of these people. They are usually people who have an agricultural background. They sow and focus on agriculture for one part of the year. But for the second part of the year, they don't have meaningful livelihood opportunities. Mm-hmm. So they come on a seasonal basis to cities for working in construction sites. So they have limited social equity because they're not from there. They have high financial pressure because they are often working on day rates. And three is the structure of this industry is largely informal, which means that a site owner never really knows who is working on their site because people actually come for day wages, day jobs, etc. And hence, there is limited accountability on the employer themselves, the primary employer, to ensure the well-being or the safety of uh, the workers themselves. And this results in the workers being at significant risk. Happy to share with you more as we go forward as well. So it sounds, if I can put it this way, Latish, like it's it's a bit of a buyer's market in terms of the labor market in, in that sector. And how does that impact the the way that the hiring of workers translates into realization of that of that risk, if I can put it that way, harms emerging from their vulnerability? Absolutely. So you're right that it is a labor surplus market. So the supply side is much higher which means there are places called nakas in India, in the cities, where workers aggregate every day, where people come in every day, contractors, and pick workers for a day or a few days' work. So which means at any point in time, the contractors actually have a surplus supply of workers that they would need, number one. Number two is the construction industry in India today hasn't adopted a lot of the emerging technology practices that are adopted globally. The amount of prefabricated work in India still is a very small share of the work that happens in construction, which means that there is a limited premium on skills today. You know, Recently, there have been strong regulatory changes to ensure that work finishes on time and uh, you know in budget, etc. But before that, the customer had very limited control on the project management of a site as well. So which means that you have commoditized talent in large-scale supply, and contractors who have no long-term binding towards construction workers themselves, you know. And what that meant is that contractors essentially picked up workers that they found everywhere, uh, took them on day jobs, or in certain cases, there were agents who worked in rural India who brought in workers on the promise of jobs as well, you know. And if you look at a typical construction site, and if you look at the Apex employer, which is really the, let's say, the developer, Between him or her and the last worker that we're talking about, there are sometimes up to seven levels that can happen in a construction site where capital actually changes hands, you know, and hence there is a cut of margin at every level, but there is also a large level of informalization, which again then means issues such as overtime, you know, working overtime, issues such as um, being present or being able to take absence for any physical illness being paid on time, you know, incidents of violence, all of these go unmonitored in the construction site. So tell us a bit, Ratish, about the work that you're doing to address some of these vulnerabilities. Absolutely. So one of the first questions that we asked ourselves is that in solving this problem, and if you have to solve this at scale, it's extremely critical to find out who's an interested party in ensuring that the worker welfare and the worker well-being is taken care of. And what we did over two years, uh, James, was to talk to the various stakeholders in the value chain of the construction industry to understand who are particularly keen in solving the problem. And what was interesting for us is that we found two stakeholders who we believe have the highest amount of impact 
on a worker well-being and have a strong interest in making this happen you know number one was actually people who are investing in construction projects today a lot of the funding that comes into infrastructure and real estate projects in india are also coming from pension funds sovereign funds etc where there is a growing international awareness to ensure that the labor standards are maintained and this money is handed over to lenders and then subsequently to developers but there are very few systems that ensure that the trail is actually managed across this value chain and worker well-being is taken care of and we saw a deep level of interest among investors and lenders in ensuring that worker practices are maintained number one the second stakeholder interestingly was the first employer that which is what we call a micro contractor who essentially employed 5 to 10 people this person actually had the highest impact on worker well-being but today had zero incentive towards ensuring worker well-being number one two they were constantly looking to grow their business and they recognize that delivering well demonstrating productivity and having access to capital is going to help them grow so one of our theses today is that if we have to demonstrate this value we'll have to work at the first mile with the investors and the lenders but also with the last mile and ensure that their incentives and their motivations are met in the way we look at issues of uh, worker welfare and worker well-being you know and today we have a project that we are working on together with a consortium of partners where we are trying to demonstrate through data and evidence that providing the right incentives to the last mile contractor actually results in improved worker well-being and the improved working conditions for the migrant workers in the construction industry fascinating so if i boil that down ratish you're essentially offering the micro contractors improved terms of access to capital in return for what changing their labor management practices or or what do you expect from them in return absolutely let me build on that a little bit more james i think we are offering them four incentives but the first one what we believe is the most powerful is access to capital but we are offering also other incentives including for example access to uh, premium developers you know so many of these times the micro contractors might not have access to developers or other contractors and we can be enabling market access to third is we are also providing them training you know we are saying hey can we actually train you in financial management and entrepreneurship etc that can actually help you manage your money better and run your business more effectively and lastly there are a lot of government social security benefits that don't accrue or you know are delivered at the last mile effectively we are saying we can help your workers get those benefits if you work with us you know which again i'm uh, sure that their uh, you know reliance on you and their uh, relationship with you is getting deepened so these are the four incentives that we are looking at in return what we are asking from the micro contractor is to ensure that they treat the workers well which includes ensuring that uh, they they paid on time you know and ensure that they paid in a fair manner ensure that their well-being is taken care of essentially in terms of essential best practices that are followed and so on and that's something that we are committing to them for and they're saying in lieu of getting these uh, benefits can you ensure that your workers get all of these uh, essential uh, you know fair standards so how is this project or instrument financed pratish excellent so there are three types of capital james that needs to come together today for this to happen because and i think a little bit of a background i think is important here james is that the micro contractors that we are talking about are people who typically don't have access to formal credit at all they have no credit history they have no ins- formal background of taking a le- formal lending instrument from a bank or a financial institution and hence giving them capital today is a very risky proposition 
So what we have done is to bring together three types of capital to solve that problem. One is philanthropic capital that's actually helping us with the program execution, which is the attracting these microcontractors, training them, enabling them, following up with them, collecting the data and so on. The second type of capital is actually risk uh, capital, which is we are talking to primary investors who are willing to take the risk of providing loans to these people at a promised return guarantee that they are seeking. But the third capital, which I think is very critical here, is the first loss guarantee support that we have in place so that in case there is a risk where the microcontractors will not pay back the loans that they have taken, there is guarantee support for this capital provider and for the finance provider who is offering the lending support. And a few strategic philanthropic organizations have come forward to support us with the first loss guarantee support as well. Can you tell us a bit about the scale of this work, Pratish? How big an instrument are we looking at? How many people are you, how many beneficiaries are looking to be impacted? Right. So we are looking at it as a three-phased approach, James. The first part of the work, which is really the initial pilot that we want to do, is aiming to do about 250 such microcontractors because we want to start at a small scale because success in the 250 is to really build the data around risk. You know, to say how many contractors actually pay us back the money, how many contractors actually change their behavior. And there we were consciously limiting ourselves to a small sample so that we can monitor them very, very closely rather than take a large sample where we only focus on broad data. That's number one. In phase two, we are already having plans to scale this to about 1,000 to 2,000 microcontractors where we are able to demonstrate that the data from the 240 people is giving us the right measure of the risk and the right interest where we can attract more capital. The idea subsequently, which is phase three, for which we are already starting to work, is to integrate this instrument with the industry and the way they function to get actually mainstream finance providers and the mainstream industry to give us the enabling environment where we believe potentially that we can talk to anywhere between 100,000 to 500,000 uh, microcontractors across some of the largest cities in the country. But that's the scale we want to build towards. And you said, Ratish, I think up the top that uh, the microcontractors are employing five to 10 people. Is that right? So 500,000, five to 10 people, that's several million workers affected. Is that the, the scale of ambition? Absolutely. And what we believe when you reach that ambition is that the need for a first loss guarantee support goes away because we know the risk reward ratio. So this is actually lending capital, number one. The second thing is in India, there is a huge interest among a lot of players today to look at this group of emerging micro entrepreneurs and provide them lending support. So there are tailwinds in the way the finance industry and the market is moving where the once we are able to demystify the risk involved in lending, and once we are able to build effective monitoring systems, I think unlocking capital for those entrepreneurs is actually something that's very possible. Indeed. And from a broader impact investing perspective, I think the beauty of a project like this, Tartish, is that you're not simply de-risking an existing project, but you're actually offering ways for investors to invest in the reduction of systemic risk, which is a bit of a holy grail, I think, in, in ESG markets at the moment and going to be even more in demand as the ESG markets become more sophisticated and as in impact investors look for those opportunities to show positive impact towards the SDGs. Absolutely, James. And I think the other point I would add from an ESG lens, it's one of the biggest challenges in ESG today is the access to on-ground data. Mm -hmm. If you're able to structure this well to provide that data at scale, I think that then provides a large ammunition for investors, lenders to actually use that data to establish benchmarks, 
to look at quality of worker welfare, etc. Because a lot of ESGs today is still top down. It stops at the level of policy. The on-ground data is really the holy grail for ESG and being able to provide that at scale actually can create significant value. That seems absolutely correct to me, Ratish. So, so tell us a little bit more about that. How do you measure impact on, on the ground and, and what have you seen so far? So we are at a place, uh, James, where we were good to go a few months ago. But uh, as you know, the situation in India has been fairly adverse. And the COVID wave one significantly impacted the migrant workers who went back to their uh, hometowns. In uh, wave two, again, uh, we are seeing a pattern of migrants staying in the cities, but also going back home. So we've been delayed by a few months, but we've been able to identify the micron contractors that we want to work with already. We have secured the financial capital and the training for the micro contractors actually ongoing right now. But what we've been able to put in place are systems to collect data on an ongoing basis. And we collect data in two ways. One is data from the micro contractors themselves. Here, I think we are positioning ourselves from a place of trust and saying we are taking the self-reported data of micro contractors to see how they are actually moving, evolving and where we are asking the microcontractor two two forms of data. One is the data on the business impact that uh, the incentives that we provided have had, which is them accessing bigger opportunities, employing more workers, and so on. And second data that we are asking for them is how they are treating their workers, you know, and proves and slips around how have they been paying workers and so on. In addition to this, we are also establishing a direct connect to the workers to be able to collect uh, data directly from the workers, which is a combination of uh, inbound and outbound. We're going to do a series of outbound calls to them on a regular basis to poll and check with them whether some of the benefits that they are supposed to receive are being received or not. But we are also keeping the window open for an inbound call where a worker can potentially come to us and say that they're facing a challenge of any time. Because in doing an exercise like this, this primary responsibility for us as a consortium of partners is towards the workers as well. So ensuring that if ever the worker is at risk, we are able to respond to it is very, very important. So we are ensuring that there is an inbound channel for the workers to reach out to us as well. So we are able to triangulate the data from the microcontractor with direct data from the workers at scale. Great. Well, thank you for everything you're doing. It's, it's really pioneering work undertaken these days, it turns out, under extremely trying circumstances for all of you in India, I'm sure. All of our listeners join me in wishing you all the very best of success for this project and resilience in the face of the enormous challenges you're all wrestling with there in India. Thank you, Ratish, for for joining us. Thank you, James. Really appreciate the opportunity. Ratish's comments about the importance of what he calls an inbound channel where workers can raise concerns or grievances raises an important point. The world of investing is all about risk, but that notion can become quite abstract at times. What we're talking about here is risks to people. And in some cases, those risks are going to be realized. So what role do we expect investors or indeed other financial sector actors to play in dealing with and remedying the resulting harms? That's the question that we'll ask in our next episode of Fast Podcast, the last in this series. Join me then to find out. This is a podcast recording by United Nations University Center for Policy Research. The views expressed are those of the speakers.